You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, January 30th, 2023. Later in the program, we have Activate, narratives from people making positive change, done in collaboration with the Bloomington Volunteer Network. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Mayor John Hamilton and Assistant Director for the Arts, Holly Warren, discuss the Arts Feasibility Study released by the city. More in the top half of tonight's show. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission meeting on January 26th, Chair of the Commission, John Saunders, was re-elected as Chair, and Sam DeSoller was re-elected as the Vice President of the Commission. Next, the Commission moved on to reviewing demolition delays. Historic Preservation Program Manager Gloria Colombrania shared a request for a partial demolition at 622 North Washington Street. So with this proposal, the the original portion of the first floor would remain mostly intact. Um, Staff recognizes that the change, uh, proposed change to the building will affect the full geometry of the structure. However, the historic portion of the building will be given a new life. So usually with this type of proposal, we do not look at what will happen in the future. That's not in our purview whatsoever. But the extent of the demolition is important to note because it does change the shape, geometry of the building extensively. Um, Staff is recommending release of the demolition delay. The petitioner, Barry Klepper, explained that they will rebuild the house with the same materials. We've had a um, foundation failure on the southwest corner of the porch, so that's going to be dismantled and a new foundation laid and then reassembled using the original material. Okay. So that'll go back as it is. The commission unanimously approved the release of the demolition delay. The next partial demolition they reviewed was for a house located at 211 North Grant Street. Colombrania explained that the staff recommended considering alternative solutions to the demolition. Because the, the building's porch is very is unstable and is out of is detaching from the house and has issues. The house has been rated notable to its material integrity and care. So uh, this was a, another working class era cottage, but the windows are intact, the porch is original, the foundations, the even the siding is the original wood. Um, the purpose of the, and this is again another one where context is so important, I usually wouldn't bring what the future purpose of the demolition is, but it's basically to restore the building, to um, or to stabilize the porch, uh, rebuild it. Um, so in this one, staff, would consider this one can go anyway. Staff could um, 
has thought about the possibility of releasing it, but also of maybe the petitioner retracting the demolition permit and restoring the porch in a different manner, or maybe the HPC elevating this building to a historic district so that the HPC can have a more careful look at the porch. The petitioner, Mac Matterson, shared their plans for the building. This portion right here is what we're needing to replace. This portion will all remain the same, but it has fell to the level that Kevin Potter recommends either installing helical piers, which will jack up the foundation, and then have a mason come in after that to do a repair, or to do a demo of just that portion of it. All the masons that I talked to, which was about six or seven, all agreed that when they go to jack up that portion, that wall's gonna fall. It's been like this for decades, and it's to the point now that it's it's no longer, they, they're afraid that if they even go to mess with it, it's gonna fail. Um, so I have with me some samples of the brick that they plan to use. You guys can see, it's, you, you picked a brick that is very similar to what's there. We're not trying to change the aesthetic at all, but just to rebuild what was there previously. Colom Branya explained what the options the commission has regarding the demolition delay. The HPC really has two choices, to release or to nominate. Um, the idea of retraction is something that really can only come from the owner, but on the other hand, we now have a bit more context where the owner explained that he did explore the possibility of, of um, lifting the porch and that it's become much more complicated. So with that, you know, so this is this is one of the reasons it's really also good to have a representative here to be able to speak on behalf of their project. Um, to speak on behalf of the project and what's going on and, and provide a bit more context. So really in the end, the only um, options that the HPC has is to release or to elevate to a historic district. Elevate to a historic district doesn't mean that the project cannot happen. It just means that it would ha then have to go through the certificate of appropriateness project, and then there would be two or three months of waiting time while it goes through the, through the common council uh, process. So it doesn't mean the end of the world for the building or the project, um, but rather that it would be a longer process. I'm just explaining this right for the, for the public here. The commission unanimously approved the release of the demolition delay for the property on North Grant Street as well. The next meeting of the Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission is scheduled for February 9th. Earlier this month, Mayor John Hamilton and Assistant Director for the Arts Holly Warren discussed the Arts Feasibility Study released by the city in October 2022. The Arts Feasibility Study, done in partnership with Trahan Architects, was recommended by the Waldron Recommendations Task Force. The study was also part of the Recover Forward initiative, which meant to help the community recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. In her introductory remarks, Warren explained the city's vision for the arts and provided an overview of the study's recommendation. Thinking outside of facilities, yeah. we need to think about art not just happening in a performing arts center, but happening all over on street corners. We have the idea you walk outside and you can hear music. So thinking about how can we do programs to get art on the street, 
and with students in K-12 programs. Um, and then we're also thinking, while we have enough venues for people to perform, what we don't have is facilities for artists to make things. As for a new facility, Hamilton said he views it as similar to the mill, but for artists. Warren elaborated on recommendations based on the arts feasibility study. She pointed to what she hopes the future holds in store for the Bloomington Arts. So we're partnering with a lot of local entities to do more programs. We're looking at partnering with more entities to do programs in schools and in the downtown neighborhood and in neighborhoods. And again, this is with the idea of getting young students the resources they need from the beginning to engage in the arts. Warren and Hamilton explained where the funds are coming from to pay for various art programming in the city. ARPA funds okay. and uh, the lit, the tax the new increase income tax. funds okay. to be able to do this. So Good. we're so grateful to have that. And again, that's just going to make sure that K-12 students have access to arts resources. And it also means we're going to be able to do more public art programming, both downtown and in neighborhoods, to help our community members feel like they have a sense of connection with each other through the arts. So this is incredibly exciting, and I can't wait to start digging into this work in these months. She outlined that part of the study dealt with communication, how to get the word out about citywide arts initiatives. Warren touched on a communication platform the city's working on. Because one thing that was recommended throughout this entire study is, hey, you have got these amazing facilities to present performances, and now we're going to start doing these things to get more artists involved in programs and get more audiences involved in seeing programs. So we also need a communications platform to make sure this information is effectively getting out to the world. So you're working on that? We are working on that. Yes, that was a high recommendation, so we're very focused on that. We're actually working with partners at IU. and to the community to create this resource platform. We're so excited about it. We're really hoping this is just going to get people feel like they know where they need to go if they want to take a class, if they want to see a performance, if they want to sell or show their visual work. It's super exciting. Lastly, Warren and Hamilton expounded on the idea for an arts incubator and what options the city's exploring at the moment. So we have to think about this in two ways, right? So Trahan did propose a very large scale, long-term facility for this. But as we know, that will take time. And we want to make sure that artists who are in our community now don't have to wait for that. We want them to be able to make work now. So we're also going to do some exploration this year of smaller facilities where we can kind of beta test this incubator model. So we're going to be looking at a smaller site where we can hopefully invite artists in to just do their work. We are hoping that there will be opportunities for the public to come in. There will be like open studio hours, right? Where you can go see what it means to make a work of art. To read the complete arts feasibility study, visit WFHB.org following this broadcast. Up next, a monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by the Perilous Chronicle. This program was featured on the latest edition of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Friday on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org. We turn now to the producers of KiteLine for more.
Two female work-released prisoners escaped from the KC County Detention Center in Liberty, Kentucky on December 1st. The pair were assigned as cooks at the jail and escaped by walking out an unlocked door. While one of them was arrested within 48 hours, the other spent over a month on the lam before being re-arrested at 9pm on New Year's Eve. A group of at least 39 prisoners detained at the Eli State Prison in Nevada launched a hunger strike on December 1st in response to a list of grievances with their captors, including excessive use of punishments, solitary confinement and lockdowns, correctional abuse, inadequate food, lack of due process for rule violations, and other health and safety concerns. The prisoner advocacy group returned strong and other supporters held a demonstration in front of the Nevada Department of Corrections Transitional Housing Center in Las Vegas on December 9th in solidarity with those on hunger strike. The strike ended at the end of December without a clear agreement being reached between strikers and the Department of Corrections, although the department did announce a change in the way disciplinary measures are implemented in an effort to appease the strikers. Quote, Going forward, just like disciplinary segregation, we will not impose consecutive sanctions, a department director said. Quote, any administrative sanctions beyond the current action will cease. At around 6.30pm on Wednesday, December 7th, two prisoners escaped from the Lorraine Medina's community-based correctional facility in Elyra, Ohio. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, the prisoners broke a window at the facility and fled. They were both recaptured by the Northern Ohio Violent Fugitive Task Force on Friday, December 9th. One prisoner was recaptured in Akron, Ohio. The other was recaptured in Wadsworth, Ohio. On Sunday, December 11th, a disturbance was reported at the Mountain Youth Academy, a residential trauma-based treatment program for youth in Mountain City, Tennessee. Allegedly, six people detained at the facility vandalized portions of the facility that resulted in significant property damage. Minor injuries were sustained by some staff and other detainees. Police were called. There were no reports of use of force. Those six people have been arrested and are being held at the sheriff's office. The cause of the disturbance is unknown. According to an anonymous source who reported to the Tomahawk, 12 female juveniles were involved in the event. On the evening of December 12th, two prisoners escaped from Cass County Jail in Harrisonville, Missouri. No reports have indicated how the two prisoners left the jail, but reports indicate a third person, who has since been arrested as an accomplice in the escape, was waiting for the two prisoners at a nearby gas station. One of the prisoners was captured 13 hours after the escape. His mother has also been arrested as an accomplice in the escape. As of January 8th, 2023, the other prisoner has yet to be captured. On December 13, 2022, law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions raided an encampment in DeKalb County, Georgia, outside Atlanta, where protesters had been camping as part of the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. The protesters were camped out in hopes of preventing the construction of a $90 million police training facility and the destruction of the forest. When police took six protesters to DeKalb County Jail, others held a protest in front of the jail to show their solidarity with those arrested. In response to the protests out front of the jail, Detainees banged on windows, flashed their lights, and even lit unknown objects on fire and hung them out the jail windows. On Sunday, December 25th, two prisoners were found to be missing during headcount at the Raymond Detention and Work Center in Raymond, Mississippi. According to reports, the prisoners escaped the evening before, December 24th, through a damaged door in their pod and then jumped the facility's fence. 
Allegedly, after their escape, they stole a van from a nearby church. Law enforcement found the van in a body of water the next day. As of January 8th, 2023, the prisoners have yet to be recaptured. Attorneys for two imprisoned men argued last week before the state Supreme Court that Ohio prison officials should not be able to extend certain inmates' time behind bars because the law that enabled this is unconstitutional. That issue is part of a 2019 law that lets Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction argue for the parole board to keep some felony offenders in prison past the minimums of their sentence ranges due to bad behavior or indications they haven't been rehabilitated. The law, which the state defends as constitutional, was named for Reagan Tokes, a college student abducted, raped, and murdered by a man on parole in 2017. Two men, Christopher Hacker and Danon Simmons Jr., imprisoned in cases unrelated to that crime, are contesting the law. A previous ruling in a different case allowed incarcerated citizens like them to challenge the law even before DRC officials might move to extend their sentences. The outcome of their cases could impact dozens more, as the High Court is holding more than 60 cases until it decides these challenges. Hacker and Simmons argue the provision violates the constitutionally outlined separation of powers between the judicial branch, which issues sentences, and the executive branch, which includes the prison's department. They say the provision allows the executive branch to act as prosecutor, judge, and jury, and infringes on the right to a fair trial by not ensuring protections, such as the right to an attorney during proceedings about extending a sentence. A prominent California medical school is apologizing for conducting dozens of experiments on prison inmates in the 1960s and 70s that it now says were unethical. Two dermatologists at the University of California, San Francisco, one of whom remains at the university, conducted the experiments on at least 2,600 incarcerated men in the 1960s and 70s, including putting pesticides and herbicides on the men's skin and injecting it into their veins. The experiments were conducted at the California Medical Facility, a prison hospital in Vacaville that's about 50 miles northeast of San Francisco. The practice was halted in 1977. Quote, UCSF apologizes for its explicit role in the harm caused to the subjects, their families and our community by facilitating this research and acknowledges the institution's implicit role in perpetuating unethical treatment of vulnerable and underserved populations, regardless of the legal or perceptual standards of the time, Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost Dan Lowenstein said in a statement on the school's website. The university issued a report earlier this month acknowledging doctors engaged in, quote, questionable informed consent practices and performed research on men that didn't have the diseases that the doctors intended to treat. Up next, we have Activate. Narratives from people making positive change, done in collaboration with the Bloomington Volunteer Network. Today's episode features Loida Rodriguez, Volunteer Recruitment Specialist for the American Red Cross of Indiana. We turn now to the latest installment of Activate on the WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring stories of inspiration from your community members who stand up for what they believe in, and encouraging you to live your passion, make a difference, and get involved. 
Hola, mi nombre es Loida Rodríguez. Yo soy reclutadora con la Cruz Roja Americana de Indiana y aquí estoy hablando de nuestras oportunidades que tenemos para ser voluntario. Si está interesado en ser voluntario con la Cruz Roja, puede visitarnos en, en la redcross.org diagonal volunteer allí puede encontrar en nuestra página las diferentes oportunidades que puede asistir como voluntario de la Cruz Roja si tiene preguntas por favor puede escribir a loida.rodriguez redcross.org para cualquier pregunta que tenga para ver cómo usted puede ser voluntario con nosotros Hello, my name is Loida Rodriguez. I am with the American Red Cross. I am a volunteer recruitment specialist, so I have the really great chance of working with the volunteers who help the humanitarian mission. With the Red Cross, a lot of people, when they think about us, they just think we're blood. And we actually have many services. We have our five services, which are training services. So a lot of people know uh, CPR, first aid classes that we teach, blood with our blood donations. And we also have many other services, disaster services and service to the armed forces, international services. So my role has me recruit for the volunteer positions that are within those services. So most commonly what we have are many volunteers who want to help with disasters. And so we help here locally with disasters and most of those are actually home fires. So what we at the Red Cross have are disaster responders known as a part of the disaster action team. And those are local volunteers that we train. You do have to be 18 years or older. And with experience, then you go in person to help at these scenes where we see home fires, but then also to scenes of other disasters such as tornadoes. Big piece that I would say is inspiring is someone can go from I don't know anything about helping out with a disaster to I want to help. Can you guide me to what I'm supposed to do? So letting them know about the volunteer application process, getting them involved, and then to see them flourish in their position is really great. And uh, what's great too is that you don't necessarily have to be that person who has a say social work background or has a degree in emergency management. You can just have the heart to help with our volunteer positions. We do have an online volunteer application. And so for us, we really just encourage if someone's interested in volunteering, they can check us out at redcross.org volunteer. That website will give you a chance to see all the different opportunities. So with that disaster responder, for example, yeah, you get to learn a little bit more, see a video, what it looks like for someone who is on scene and what they're responding to and what that might look like. And so it's a great chance to say, check it out to see see what it is that interests you. But then also once you begin your online volunteer application, then you create your own account and then we process that. And once it's completed successfully, then you get the chance to be placed in the volunteer position of your interest that also fits with our department needs. I've been in this role now for a little over three and a half years. I just get really inspired when I see someone say, I want to help, I want to want to be involved. And it brings me back to my moment of uh, knowing about a mission and then knowing that there's people out there that want to help. So we have 
the Red Cross movement. And it's neat to know that what you're doing here, you're locally helping your community, but it's a movement of people, humanitarians that want to help. And that I think is what really brought it home for me is I want to work at a place that gives me the chance to do that on an everyday basis. And of course, then working with volunteers, you get to see someone who starts off with um, just that initial interest, and then they really develop into these roles. And as a volunteer, you really get to make that your experience. I've seen volunteers where they come in, we would consider them a trainee, right? They're really uh, just getting their their feet wet. But then next thing you know, they're on these deployments, they're on national deployments where, for example, Hurricane Ian, where locally they were involved, they were helping, and then they saw the need. We did a call out for our volunteers. If you're available, you're willing to go, can you go? And then they're sending us their stories back saying, I'm here. This is what I'm seeing on the ground. And that to me just continues to motivate, to motivate you to say of the good that's in the world and that how you can help it is very strongly felt. Hello, my name is Loida Rodriguez. I am with the American Red Cross of the Indiana region, and I am a volunteer recruitment specialist. So my role is really just getting the opportunity to connect with individuals, community members, and organizations to share how you can be involved with the Red Cross. So redcross.org slash volunteer. Hola, mi nombre es Loida Rodríguez. Yo soy una reclutadora con la Cruz Roja Americana de Indiana y yo hablo con las comunidades, las organizaciones y los grupos aquí eh, localmente para poder aprender sobre los recursos de la Cruz Roja y saber cómo es ser voluntario con nosotros. And para nosotros es una gran oportunidad poder entrenar a nuestros voluntarios para que puedan asistir en los diferentes servicios que tenemos. You've been listening to Activate, a co-production of WFHB and City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build an empowered, vibrant, engaged community. To find more information about volunteering in your community, visit bloomington.in.gov slash volunteer. The City of Bloomington's Volunteer Network aims to inspire, support, and celebrate volunteerism in the community by connecting volunteers of all ages and interests with opportunities to serve. They invite you to get involved and make a difference by visiting bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in.gov to learn more. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolar.com.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Activate was produced by Kirsten Payton and Michelle Moss. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 